We're looking at Daniel chapter 1, another part of the Bible that God speaks to us. We need him to work in us as we hear him. So let's pray again. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do speak the Bible to us. Thank you for the book of Daniel and the things you have to say to us as we read it. Please do work in us that we'd give you careful attention, that we'd trust you in the things you speak to us. In the Lord Jesus, amen. It's easy to imagine we'll be faithful when some big test comes. It's easy to imagine our confidence in God would would allow us to stand when puzzled Luke turns to prison sentence until we think about it. It's fairly easy to imagine struggling with a smaller test, a direct and uncomfortable question from a dear non-Christian friend. The obvious choice to honor God or play it safe at work. The relationship which will limit our ability to serve the Lord Jesus. What will keep us living to please God when there are so many other things we could live for? What will keep us living to please God when there are so many other things we could live for? If you're curious but not yet committed uh, to Jesus, what would make any of us or you want to keep living to please God when you feel like living for something else? In six chapters of story and then six chapters of vision, uh, God shows us that he rules now and always. Kings and their kingdoms come and go, presidents and prime ministers uh, rise and fall under God's rule. In the eternal future, there will be no competing rule. God rules now and always. Daniel shows it to us and he helps us see what it looks like to live Monday to Sunday with heads, hearts and lives tuned to God's rule. To think and, and live as if God rules now. To think and live as if God will always rule into his everlasting kingdom. The first and last verses of chapter 1 tell us two dates. Verse 1, the year that Babylon came and besieged Jerusalem. Verse 21, the year Babylon fell to Cyrus and some Judeans uh, were allowed to return to Jerusalem. Uh, This is where the map comes in. Uh, Almost everything that happens in this book happens a thousand kilometers east of Jerusalem in Babylon. That's where we're talking about. Let's think about when. Let's look at when Daniel sits in Israel's history. Uh, Here's a timeline that some of you will have seen before. Uh, The book uh, of Daniel begins 800 years after the Exodus when God rescued Israel out of Egypt and spoke to them at Mount Sinai. Uh, At Sinai, God promised blessing uh, in the land he promised to give. And he warned that if they disobeyed and rebelled against him, he would remove them from that promised land. God kept his promise. 
He brought his people into the land. The high point of their life was 400 years before when Daniel speaks, uh, when King Daniel and King Solomon were on the throne. But after that, Israel split into two kingdoms, two nations, Israel in the north, Israel in the north Judah in the south. Both lived in rebellion against God. Neither listened to the prophets God gave them to warn them again. Eventually, uh, a century or so uh, before Daniel begins, God kept his warning and gave Israel over to Assyria. Many of her people were scattered out of the promised land uh, around the Assyrian uh, uh, Empire. The southern nation Judah saw it, but they didn't take the warning. Which brings us to the beginning of when Daniel writes about when the balance of power had shifted from Assyria to Babylon. Babylon defeated Assyria and Babylon defeated Jerusalem. Then chapter 1, chapter one verse 21 jumps way ahead uh, towards the end of the time that Daniel writes about. When Babylon was defeated by the Medes and Persians, their ruler allowed some Judeans uh, to return uh, to, to Judah Uh, which at that point was part of his Medo-Persian empire. There was another hundred years uh, before Nehemiah and his generation were allowed to return. Okay, you're getting a picture of where the time is that Daniel writes about, lived through. Daniel wrote into that time, after Babylon's fall, under the rule of the Medes and Persians, His first readers were either uh, still in exile in Babylon or or back in Judah. Either way, they lived under foreign rule and influence. Daniel wrote to help them figure out how to live under the rule and influence of idol-worshipping rulers. He wrote to help them figure out how to live under the rule and influence of idol-worshipping rulers. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle speaks to believers as exiles. He has this sort of situation in mind. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when you, they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Just like Daniel's first readers, we need help figuring out how to live under the rule and influence of idol-worshipping rulers and culture. Most modern idols don't have a statue. But people with authority still say, this is what I live for, and you should live for it too. Comfort, convenience, pleasure, power, prestige, safety, security, self-determination. They're the things that demand life be shaped around them. They're false and fading gods. They're idols. We need help figuring out how to live under the rule and influence of rulers and culture who are ruled by something less than God. Daniel writes to help us live with heads, hearts, and lives tuned to 
God's eternal rule. So chapter 1 verse 1 takes us back to the beginning of Judah's exile. uh, When Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Babylon came against Jerusalem uh, after defeating the superpower nations, uh, Assyria and, and Egypt. Judah knew what to expect. Imagine Babylon as the newly crowned mixed martial arts world champion. Tattooed up, high on adrenaline, ready to destroy all challengers. And in jumps Judah. Judah looks like a particularly scrawny 10-year-old, a mixed martial arts noob. And you know who's going to win. Babylon did win. King Nebuchadnezzar defeated Jerusalem. He took tribute uh, to his god to his gods from the house of of Jerusalem's God. He took it back to the land of Shinar where the Tower of Babel had been built. Genesis tells how the Lord God uh, confused the languages of rebel humans in the land of Shinar. Now a rebel human brings back trophies that scream his victory over Jerusalem's God. His God's victory over Jerusalem's God. In Nebuchadnezzar's mind, he defeated Judah because his God defeated Jerusalem's God. But thinking it's true doesn't make it true. Verse 2 in Daniel chapter 1 reveals the unseen reality. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar thought his God won. Some of Jerusalem may have thought the weak and scrawny Lord Lord Yahweh was defeated by the world champion. But the unseen reality is that God, Yahweh, the living and true God, rules. God is in control of everything that happened. He gave Nebuchadnezzar victory. He gave Nebuchadnezzar some of the vessels of the house of God. God rules. But in verses 3 to 7, we see Babylon try to train God's people to serve a new ruler. Babylon tries to train God's people to serve a new ruler. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he rules, so he commands that the cream of Jerusalem be brought to Babylon and trained to serve him. The best families lose their best sons, the best looking, the physically fittest, the intellectually most capable are deported to Jerusalem. This states they're probably in their late teens. Everything that can be done is done to train them to serve their new ruler. They're given luxury food and drink from the king's own table, presumably luxury accommodation too. They're prisoners, but they are privileged. Yeah. It would be hard not to like the king who gives such luxury. It's designed to train them to like their king and serve Babylon. Their three-year university course is designed to train them to serve the king who rules them. Imagine the Babylonian professor beginning his first lecture. Okay, class, uh, for the next three years, you'll learn the wisdom of our culture, scientific formula and skills for glassmaking, mathematics, astrology, myths, legends, omens, magic, incantations, prayers and hymns to our gods. Your God let you down. Our gods are going well for us. Later in turn, we'll talk about pleasing 
uh, minor deities and demons who influence little areas. But we begin with the great gods who gave us victory over all the nations. The education they began was an education in virtually every spirituality the living and true God banned from Israel. It's aimed at training them to be good Babylonians so they can serve the king who now rules them. Verse 6 focuses in on four students. Uh, All their names say something about the God of Israel. Daniel's name means God judges. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is like God. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. Great names. Their new names say, don't worry about any of that stuff. You can leave that behind you now. Here's what you'll be called from now on. Belteshazzar means protect the life of the king. Those other names, they hint at serving Marduk or Nebo or some other Babylonian god. So far from home, here are these guys in the light chains. They're given Babylonian privileges, Babylonian education, Babylonian names. It's all aimed at training them to serve their new ruler. The king of Babylon, who now rules them. So what do Daniel and the others do? Conform or kick against it? Go along with the training or reject it? Well, yes. They refuse to to conform and they transform. They reject the training and they learn it brilliantly. In verses 8 to 16, we see them refusing to conform and rejecting the training. They keep serving the God who rules the nations. Verse 8, the best food in Babylon is on the king's table. It's a privilege to share it. Uh, Before they were brought here uh, to, to Babylon from Jerusalem, Jerusalem was under siege. That means they were starving. Short of water and any food, let alone eating yeah, meat and drinking wine. Now they're offered the opportunity to feast every day. But verse 8, key verse, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now it takes a bit of respectful negotiation to be allowed not to do it. The chief of the eunuchs is worried about what the king will think Uh, when he sees his future servants looking vegetarian. But the steward who uh, brings their food, he agrees to a 10-day test. And remarkably, at the end of the 10 days, they're miraculously looking better than and fatter than the non-vegetarians. Daniel and the others obviously do it to honor God. Why is the king's food and wine the issue? Particularly, I think, verse 12, the king's meat and wine. After all, it's a very strange choice for people who come out of a herding culture who keep sheep to eat to decide to become teetotal vegetarians. It's a strange choice. I'll give you three possible answers and then I'll tell you the one I think. Uh, Possibly uh, they don't want to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. But fruit and veg is as likely to be offered to, to the gods and as then served to people uh, as, as meat and wine would. Possibly the meat didn't match the Old Testament food laws, but that doesn't explain why they skipped the wine as well. 
Possibly feasting at the king's table felt too much like endorsing the king uh, who conquered Jerusalem. But we're going to hear a lot of loyalty from these guys towards their king in the rest of the book. Here's why I think they don't eat the king's meat and wine. They didn't want to defile themselves by feasting when the time called for mourning. They didn't want to defile themselves but by feasting when the time called for mourning. Uh, chapter 10, verses 2 and 3 put me onto this. Uh, listen for how Daniel describes what he does when he is mourning. Chapter 10, verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Now, think about this. They're in Babylon because Jerusalem has fallen. That's a reason to mourn, a very good reason to mourn. Actually, it's a reason that God gave to mourn. Uh, God said so uh, through Isaiah, um, about a century before. Isaiah chapter 22, Isaiah talks about the fall of Jerusalem, uh, God taking Jerusalem's covering and protection away, about breaches in Jerusalem's wall, the city of David, uh, God doing what he warned he would do. Then he says, chapter 2, verse 12, In that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for boldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, instead of doing what God called them to do, there is joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Just leave it up for a bit. So why don't Daniel and the others feast on the king's meat and wine? Because the fall of Jerusalem is no time to be feasting. It is the time to be mourning. They see God's hand in it, that God brought about that fall. He he, he withdrew the, the cover, the protection. They see that it's a time to mourn the city's fall and to grieve God's people's sin perhaps even their own sin. Daniel and his friends see God's hand in Jerusalem's fall. They see it happening under God's rule. They recognize it's time to repent and grieve and mourn. They honor and serve God who rules them and the nations by obeying the Lord's call for weeping and mourning when Jerusalem falls. See, they're very clear. The king who puts food on their plate is not their ultimate ruler. God is, so they keep serving him. But that doesn't mean they don't serve the Babylonian king. Think about how much they say yes to. Perhaps it's surprising how much they say yes to. They seem to answer those new names. Uh, the training program designed to uh, equip them to serve the king uh, of Babylon, along with magicians and enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers of the Bab- Babylon's court. They're saying yes to that training. Uh, we see them helping Babylon uh, work well as we read on into the book. They say yes to all of that. In verse 18, at the end of their three-year course, the king commands uh, them 
uh, to be brought. And then verse 19, he examines them. Uh, not just these four, the others too. And verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Now, ten times better, that's quite a lot better. Actually, I found the old exam results, so I thought I'd just show you. Um, As far as the king is concerned, everyone else, uh, including those who have been around for a while, they're getting seven, eight, nine, maybe nine and a half percent. Hananiah, uh, Mishael, Azariah, Daniel, they're getting 90, 93, 95, 100 percent. Actually, next week, um, the rest are going to get a big fat zero when Daniel gets 100 percent, but read chapter two and you'll see what I mean. Now, that's the king's perspective on their wisdom. Which means Daniel and the others have learned the Babylonian lessons. They understand the worldview and culture they live in. They get us assumptions and expectations. They see what's truly wise about it, as they're taught it. And they've added it into their wisdom, which begins with the fear of the Lord. See, that's when ten times wiser stops sounding like an exaggeration. The wisdom they they gain is built into and on top of the fear of the Lord. I reckon the king doesn't see half half of how much wiser they are. I toyed with the idea of having a negative result for the the not-Judeans and a positive result for those who are Judeans because the wisdom is deployed in the wrong direction. See, we as readers, we see how much wiser they are. We've seen where their ultimate allegiance lies in their decision over the food. They'll serve the king, they'll be a benefit to Babylon, but their first priority, their central concern, is to please and honor the God who rules the nations. That's their concern and priority because they recognize that God is worth it. See, God's worked this in them, but God doesn't only work in their thoughts and conscience, will and passions. He's in control of everything. They live under God's care. Verse 2, God gave Jerusalem into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, which means he he gave these four into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. But that's not all God gave. Verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. Verse 17, God gave all four of them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and understanding in all visions and dreams to Daniel. Now, hearing Daniel say God gave in each of those means we see God giving other things through the rest of the story. We recognize that God made that steward willing to run the test. God made it successful, a successful test. God brought an end to the Babylonian Empire and the Medes and Persians to rise there in verse 21. God rules it all. He is the king who controls it all. International politics, the internal attitudes of people who reject him, the abilities and learning of his followers. There is no thing that is beyond his rule. None of his people are outside his care. Now, there are no guarantees about how he will care, other than that he'll care well. 
No guarantees. Like, remember, we're reading a book written by a, a guy who, when he was a teenager, was captured out of a siege and taken as a captive to a foreign nation. So no guarantees about how God will care for us. But he is able to care for his people in every situation. We won't see any of these four martyred, but we will get hints at martyrdom through the rest of the book of Daniel. And we will see God's care in the midst of difficulty and distress. And it's assurance that he will raise his people to everlasting life. They and we who trust the Lord Jesus get to live under God's care. Now, the first readers got to hear, uh, hear about yeah, God's care uh, as they heard Daniel's testimony. And as they looked at recent history with Babylon's fall, they got to say that God truly rules. We get to hear it this side of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and have an even clearer window on the reality that God rules now and always. Jesus rules now and always. It is a great comfort to grasp this simple truth. God is in control. Whatever you're experiencing, God is in control. When all is well, God is in control. When nothing seems good, God is in control. Triumph and victory, loss and disaster, God is in control. The truth that God is in control is a great comfort even when and especially when difficulty and disaster fall. It doesn't make pain less painful, but it does mean we can lean in and trust God who gave his son as we experience it. And in every situation and circumstance, he is the one we must serve. He is the one we must learn from. We've seen in this chapter, um, knowing that he's the one we must learn from doesn't mean that the only place we get to learn wisdom from is the Bible. All truth is is God's truth. All wisdom is God's wisdom. Wherever we find it, whoever found it before us and showed it to us, all truth is God's truth. All wisdom is God's wisdom. And it will only be truly true and wise when we build it into and on top of the fear of the Lord. He is the one we must learn from. He is the one we must serve. I've seen these four young guys uh, learning their lessons uh, preparing to serve an idol in an, an idol worshiping ruler in an idol worshiping culture, but their first priority and central concern is to please and honor God who rules the nations. We'll see how that plays out in public as these guys stand firm when their lives are on the line. Uh, Fairy Furnace, Den of Lions, but their first stand is over something where the only risk is the fundamental risk. The risk of acting as if God doesn't matter. 
The risk of acting as if sin is a small thing. The risk of acting as if God's warnings can be safely ignored. It's not true, and these guys are convinced it's not true. So far from home, uh, pressure to do the opposite, they act as if God does matter. As if sin is a big deal, as if God's warnings cannot be safely ignored, as if God is worthy. We'll get to the big public things as we read on in Daniel and think about our public lives. This week, let's sit with the challenge and comfort in our private lives. Let's make room to see where knowing God rules now and always can free us from private struggles, can strengthen us to please and honor Him when no one else says. Let's pray. Our great God, we do acknowledge you as the great God of all, the one who rules now and always, who always has ruled, who always will rule, whose rule is displayed in your Son, the Lord Jesus, whose goodness is made plain as we see him go to the cross. Father, please do assure us from these things we've read this morning, these things we've heard you speak, that indeed you are the God who rules. You're the God who is able to care for your people. You're the God who is worthy. These warnings cannot be safely ignored. That sin is a big deal. That living to please you is something that matters. And Father, please do help us to see you and to live as if what we know about you is truly true. Please use our clear knowledge of who you are to free us from our private struggles, to strengthen us, to please and honor you when no one else sees, so that we'll live with integrity in those other parts of our lives in service to you there also. In the Lord Jesus. Amen.